Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 253, From Russia to the Soviet Union, The Transition, Part 2. Last time, we covered the days leading up to the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the life of the country's ordinary people. Today, we will discuss the Bolsheviks' changes that would fundamentally shatter how Russians lived. World War I is taking the lives of thousands of Russian men every week. It would total between 1.7 and 2.2 million deaths when the Russians pulled out of the conflict. On top of that, between 3.7 and 5 million men would be wounded. The people of Russia were furious with the Tsar, but this was not the cause of Nicholas II's abdicating the throne. It was bread and women. It was also the Tsar making a crucial mistake on February 25th, 1917. The war was causing shortages of food, especially bread. The women of the capital in Petrograd were searching for bread wherever they could. Little could be found. The rumor mill blamed Jews and Germans for the lack of food. However, it was not the Germans who they were fighting that was to blame. It was the generals and the German Romanovs. As many of you know, Nicholas was 97% German, and his wife, Alexandra, was 100%. Over 100,000 women would begin marching down the main street in Petrograd, the Nevsky Prospect. Strikes would blossom throughout the city. The chants included, down with the Tsar, and bread. Even though tensions were high, there was no sign of violence. There were a few incidents between the police, Cossacks, and protesters, but most importantly, everyone kept their cool. That is, until Tsar Nicholas II ordered that the military quell the protests using any force necessary. It would be his biggest mistake, and as we know, he made many mistakes during his 22-and-a-half-year reign. On the morning of February 26th, Petrograd became a militarized camp. Machine gun nests were constructed on the tops of a number of buildings. Military ambulances were scattered throughout, waiting for the coming atrocities. They didn't have to wait long, as over 50 people were shot to death at the Znamenskaya Square. This was to be the second Bloody Sunday. It was no longer about bread. This was a life-or-death struggle against the oppressive regime. The Pavlovsky Regiment was the first to mutiny, and while they were disarmed and ordered back to their barracks, they would not be the last regiment to abandon the Tsar. Up until this point, when the idea of a revolution was brought up to the Bolsheviks, one of their leaders, who was still in Petrograd, Alexander Shlapnikov, proclaimed, quote, What revolution? Give the workers a pound of bread and the movement will peter out. He was right to an extent, but with the soldiers of many regiments joining the protests, bread was no longer the motivation. As Sergei Kirpichnikov, a sergeant of the Volinsky Regiment, told his men, quote, It would be better to die with honor than to obey any further orders to shoot at the crowds. Our fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, and brides are begging for bread. Are we going to kill them? Did you see the blood on the streets today? I say we shouldn't take up positions tomorrow. 
I myself refused to go. The next morning, their commander ordered them back into the streets. When they refused, he realized things were going sideways and began running towards the barracks. The officers and soldiers opened fire, killing him. They were now in full revolt. With the news spreading among the different regiments, there was fighting between those loyal to the Tsar and those who were against him. The junior officers, who felt abused by their seniors, led the mutinies. The arsenals were raided by both the troops of the city and workers. Despite what the Bolsheviks would later claim, most of the people in the streets those days were not protesters or revolutionaries. They were spectators. Spectators viewing something that they had never seen before. They were witnessing the collapse of the Romanov dynasty, the collapse of a regime that had led Russia for 300 years. Still, the Bolsheviks were wary of what was happening. Our friend Shlyapnikov still didn't believe it was a revolution. He declared, quote, There is no revolution. We have to prepare for a long period of reaction. Shlyapnikov would meet a grisly death when he was executed on September 2, 1937, during the Great Purge. His comments and memoirs about the days in 1917 would actually be used against him at his trial. In actuality, when Nicholas II abdicated on March 15, 1917, very few Bolsheviks were actually in Russia. As Feiges puts it in his book, A People's Tragedy, quote, The revolution found us, the party members, fast asleep, just like the foolish virgins in the gospel, recalled Sergei Mstislavsky, one of the SR leaders in 1922. Much the same could be said for all the revolutionary parties in the capital. There were no authoritative leaders on any spot in any of the parties. They were all in exile, in prison or abroad. Lenin and Martov were in Zurich, Trotsky in New York, Chernov in Paris, Tzerjelti, Danz and Gotz were in Siberia. Cut off from the pulse of the capital, the leaders failed to sense what Mr. Slavsky called the approaching storm and the ever-mounting waves of the February disturbances. Having spent their whole lives waiting for the revolution, they failed to recognize it when it came. Lenin himself had predicted in January that we older men, perhaps, will not live to see the coming revolution. Even as late as February 26th, Shlapnikov, the leading Bolshevik in Petrograd, had told a meeting of socialists in Kerensky's flat, there is and will be no revolution. We have to prepare for a long period of reaction. As you can see, the Bolsheviks were not prepared for the overthrow of the Tsar. On the contrary, they were concerned that they might be blamed for all the people's problems if they came into power at that time. As Mstislavsky put it when talking about the leadership of the Bolsheviks, Oh, how they feared the masses. As I watched our socialists speaking to the crowds, I could feel their nauseating fear. I felt the inner trembling and the effort of will it took not to lower their gaze before the trusting, wide-open eyes of the workers and soldiers crowded around them. It wasn't until Trotsky and Lenin returned to Russia that the Bolsheviks began to feel emboldened. The provisional government, first led by Lvov, then by Kerensky, saw the threat that the Bolsheviks were. 
but they were waylaid by the Kornilov affair, something we've discussed in the past. They were concerned with those loyal to the Tsar, and rightfully so. Because of this, they released all of the Bolsheviks arrested earlier in the spring, arming them to face a threat that never came. The biggest threat or mistake, excuse me, that the provisional government made, in my opinion, was continuing with the unpopular war effort. As a result, there were mass defections. Men were still being killed in appalling numbers, and the problems of feeding the populace was still there. But, on the other hand, the rhetoric of the left, the SR, Mensheviks, and in particular the Bolsheviks, sounded like they had solutions to many problems facing the people. Instead of finding a way out of the war, the provisional government decided to stay with their allies. The French and Great Britain were convinced by this time that they could win the war with or without Russia being in the fight. As a result, the Americans entered the war in 1917, although with only 300,000 troops ready to fight. The Allied forces knew Russia was destined to go through a revolution. What they didn't know was who would end up on the top. No one could have foreseen the eventual victors being the Bolsheviks. No one. Of course, in hindsight, the Bolsheviks were the only party that was backing the mighty Soviets. Their slogan was, all power to the Soviets. It was a scam, a ruse, and an outright lie. Lenin had no intention of giving power to the independent-minded Soviets. His motto was, all power to the party, the Bolshevik party alone. The Soviets were basically workers' councils. They wanted to control the factories they worked in and fight for better conditions, higher wages, and shorter hours. They wanted the government to remove themselves from running the factories and stop things from being controlled by those who only saw the workers as a means of gaining wealth. What the members of the Soviets didn't realize was that Lenin and the rest of the Bolsheviks would control things even tighter and with greater ferocity than the Tsarist government. Feige's really nails it when he talks about the backing of the Soviets by the Bolsheviks being a critical factor in their eventual win. Quote, This point bears emphasizing for one of the most Basic misconceptions of the Russian Revolution is that the Bolsheviks were swept to power on a tide of mass support for the party itself. The October insurrection was a coup d'etat, actively supported by a small minority of the population, and indeed opposed by several Bolshevik leaders themselves. But it took place amidst a social revolution centered on the popular realization of Soviet power as the negation of the state and the direct self-rule of the people, much as in the ancient ideal of voila. Conditions in Russia began to deteriorate drastically in the fall. A peasant war was brewing, and anyone deemed to be of the upper class was in danger. There was growing impatience for the provisional government to deliver the promises of land for them. With the coming harvest, they decided that they would take the fruits of their labors and not the landowners. Here's what one observer said about the plunder of the estates in the Saratov province. Quote, As far as the manor buildings were concerned, they've been senselessly destroyed with 
only the walls left standing. The windows and doors were the worst to suffer. In the majority of the estates, no trace is left of them. All forms of transport have been destroyed or taken. Cumbersome machines like steam threshers, locomotives, and binders were taken out for no known reason and discarded along the roads and in the fields. The agricultural tools were also taken. Anything that could be used in the peasant households were simply disappeared from the estates. This is eerily reminiscent of the peasant rebellions of the past like Bolotnikov, Razin, and Pugachev. The main difference is they were not planned. They were spur-of-the-moment pogroms that were fueled by centuries of oppression and, of course, vodka. Lots and lots of vodka. Soviets began to crop up all over Russia. After they were formed is when the violence against the wealthy landowners would escalate. The leadership of the socialist parties would do nothing to control the Soviets and the mobs until late September. The Bolsheviks, though, would not look kindly at the violence perpetrated by the peasants. Indeed, they would unleash a reign of terror on many of them in the coming decades. None would be more harmful to the farmers than the Holodomor. It would cost millions of lives. It is here that we have a moment when the government of Russia could have become a socialist democracy with the many flavors of socialism through the Soviets, which would form a government of cooperation. This, as we know, did not happen, mainly because of the Bolsheviks. The Mensheviks and the left SRs were ready to create a socialist government based on the Soviets with the confiscation of the gentry's estates and an end to Russia's participation in the war. Lenin, though, was totally opposed to a Soviet constitutional government. In his book, The State and Revolution, he was determined that the only way to govern was through a, quote, strong and repressive party state, unquote. He believed in the dictatorship of the proletariat, which would eventually turn into a communist utopia. Lenin had no room for the Soviets in his plans. There was a possibility that a democratic assembly could be formed during a conference set for September. But unfortunately, no one could agree with the structure of this kind of assembly. The right wing wanted a coalition with the cadets, which neither the left, the center, nor the SR wanted. The center was fine with a government with bourgeoisie candidates, but that was something that the left was not going to go for. The left wanted to base a new government on the Soviets. The Bolsheviks, well, they were basically sitting on the sideline, waiting for the whole thing to collapse, which it did after four days of debate and negotiations. The collapse of the Democratic Conference showed the Russian people that the Soviet system was a farce. There was no strong leadership to be found. This was also true of the Mensheviks. They, for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist by the end of September. This created an opening for the Bolsheviks. Lenin, who was now in hiding in Finland, began to correspond with his comrades in Russia. He would say, quote, We must not be deceived by the election figures. Elections prove nothing. The majority of the people on, are on our side. It would be naive to wait for a formal majority for the Bolsheviks. No revolution ever waits for that. 
History will not forgive us if we do not assume power now. Well, some of the other Bolshevik leaders were aghast at this line of thinking. Bukharin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev were trying to negotiate with the other parties, seeing little chance that the Bolsheviks could even think that they could take complete control of the government. Lenin was furious. He knew that he needed to return to Russia, and quickly. Lenin stayed at the flat of Margarita Fofanova and convened a meeting of the leaders of the Bolshevik party on October 10th. Orlando Feiges points out an irony about the meeting place. The building was owned by one of the leading Mensheviks, Nikolai Sukhanov. Twelve Central Committee members were at the meeting. Unfortunately, after hours of research, I was only able to name eight of the attendees. Sverdlov, Lenin, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, Bubinov, Stalin, and Sokolnikov. The resolution that came out of the meeting was the following. Quote, the Central Committee recognizes that the international position of the Russian Revolution, the revolt in the German Navy, which is an extreme manifestation of the growth throughout Europe of the World Socialist Revolution, the threat of peace by the imperialists, with the object of strangling the revolution in Russia, as well as the military situation, the indubitable decision of the Russian bourgeoisie and Kerensky and company to surrender Petrograd to the Germans, and the fact that the proletarian party has gained a majority in the Soviets, all this, taken in conjunction with the peasant revolt and the swing of popular confidence toward our party, the elections in Moscow, and finally, the obvious preparations being made for a second Kornilov revolt, the withdrawal of troops from Petrograd, the dispatch of Cossacks to Petrograd, the encircling of Minsk by Cossacks, etc. All this places the armed uprising on the order of the day. Considering, therefore, that an armed uprising is inevitable and that the time for it is fully ripe, the Central Committee instructs all party organizations to be guided accordingly and to discuss and decide all practical questions. The Congress of Soviets of the Northern Region, the withdrawal of troops from Petrograd, the action of our people in Moscow and Minsk, etc., from this point of view. The vote on this resolution was 10 to 2. Both Kamenev and Zinoviev voted against it because they feared the military would intervene. Trotsky supposedly abstained at first because he felt that they needed the authority of the coming party conference scheduled for October 20th. Oh, by the way, I am using the Julian calendar, as the Gregorian didn't become official until the following year. Anyway, Lenin believed that the time to start an armed revolution was at hand, and that any delay would jeopardize the chance for the Bolsheviks to take control. He was absolutely right. To say that things went the Bolsheviks' way is one of history's grand understatements. The provisional government knew that they planned to take control of key places in Moscow and Petrograd, in part because Kamenev and Zinoviev supposedly leaked some of the information. While reading up on what was happening leading up to the Bolshevik takeover on October 25th, I came across a list of men who were bodyguards of Vladimir Lenin and some of his most important allies. They were all Latvians, Latsis, Iduk, Peters, and Smigla. 
Interestingly enough, all of these men would be executed during the Great Purge in 1937 and 38. Back to uh, Kamenev for a moment. On October 18th, he wrote an article in Maxim Gorky's paper, Nova Yezhin. Quote, At present, the instigation of an armed uprising before and independent of the Soviet Congress would be impermissible and even a fatal step for the proletariat and the revolution. Well, you can just imagine how infuriated Lenin was. He tried to send out Trotsky to deny what Kamenev said, but the Petrograd Soviet was not buying it. But for his part, Lenin was publishing letters denouncing his fellow Bolsheviks. This is all but admitting that they were planning an armed revolt aimed at taking control of the government. The provisional government, armed with all of the signs and outright announcements about the coming threat, did absolutely nothing. Alexander Kerensky, as Feiges put it, quote, began to resemble that of the last czar. Both men refused to recognize the revolutionary threat to their own authority. With Nicholas, complacency had stemmed from hopeless despair and fatalistic resignation. But with Kerensky, it was rather the result of his own foolish optimism. Phyges further goes on to write, Like Nicholas, he surrounded himself with devoted admirers who dared not speak their mind and kept his cabinet weak by constant talk of reshuffles. He had no idea of, or no wish to know, the true extent of his own unpopularity. I think it's time to reflect on that. Putin, and for his part, past President Trump, both seem to fall into the same category as Kerensky, surrounded by yes-men, shuffling cabinets, and having no idea of the extent of their unpopularity. Well, as we know, the Bolsheviks would attack the Winter Palace, where the provisional government was seated. Then they would take control of Petrograd, Moscow, and other regions of Russia. This would, of course, precipitate the beginning of one of the most devastating periods in Russian history. I'm not going to go into the events of the October Revolution or the last months of 1917, as we've covered that extensively in the past. However, when we return next time, we will cover the events of the Russian Civil War as they pertain to the transition from Russia into the Soviet Union. Well, I have an announcement to make. I have uh, started something on Buzzsprout, who is my podcast hoster, where we will have a subscription for those of you who want to help support the podcast. As you've heard, sometimes I've had some ads go in, but not all the time. It's just when I see that they're appropriate. Uh, but what we're starting is a subscription where you can donate as little as $3 a month, and that's all I'm really asking for, to help pay for the supplies, for the hosting itself, for all the other things that are involved in producing this podcast. I'd really appreciate any you know donations that you would like to make. And there's a link on my blog site. It's RussianRulersHistory.com. Again, that's RussianRulersHistory.com. And there's a link at the top of the page where you can see how you can go to Buzzsprout and 
make a donation and subscribe to it. I'm going to be working on some benefits for the subscribers that you would not normally get. So, you know, if you see your time to do that, I'd really appreciate it. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za venya manya.